afternoon. Thanks for coming by on a, on a Friday in the holiday season uh, and come by to attend a talk with a very arcane title. Happens to actually be a very interesting subject. Um, I'll just tell you a story, that some, an insight that you may not have had about your education, your academic institution that you're associated with or think about a lot. Uh, in the post-war period, and Terrence will be talking some about this process, the scientific enterprise was nationalized with the creation of the National Science Foundation, the modern incarnation of the National Institutes of Health, uh, and all the agency science arms, including the uh, public ones and the clandestine ones. Uh, that was a very clever idea because the universities were the contractors for the research uh, uh, proposals, and in the contracts there was written in something called overhead, which is usually about 50 percent. So if a university applied for a million dollars worth of research funding, uh, that would come as a check for a million and a half dollars. Um, the way universities work, because money is fungible, is the research overhead became the property of the university to be spent as it would spend. And so the science and engineering departments <coughs> became the patrons of the art and French language departments that could not support themselves. So if you're wondering where the roots of political correctness are in the academy, it comes from the fact that universities love all things big government because big government means big programs, which means contracts with overhead. It's not necessarily because of institutional bias, it's because of self-interest. That's your insight for the day. Okay, so today we have Dr. Terrence Keeley with us. Uh, and I'm Pat Michaels, by the way. I run something called the Center for the Study of Science at the Cato Institute, where we are interested in the very things that, that uh, Dr. Keeley has written so extensively and lucidly about. Uh, the fact that the process of the way we do science may have uh, serious intended or unintended consequences. I just gave you one which is that it moved the academy to the left, um, and there are many others. Anyway, he is, he knows from whence he speaks, he is the uh, president emeritus of the University of Buckingham, which is the only privately funded university in the United Kingdom. Um, it says vice chancellor emeritus. When I was over there once, I, I asked him, well, well, who's the president? And he said, well, the American University, I would be. So we're just going to say he's president emeritus. Um, he is also... Uh, an MD. He's an MD, PhD, and he's a professor of uh, clinical biochemistry, uh, even as we speak. I became interested in him when we started up our Center for the Study of Science because he wrote this wonderful book called The Economic Laws of Scientific Research, uh, which has some very interesting data and propositions in it that he will be happy to tell you about. That was a book that was um, a lot of you know, students of science have referenced it extensively. And then um, in order to get um, more interesting ideas out, he branched from that and through what I would call evolutionary behaviorism uh, in sex, science, and profits, uh, how, to, how people evolved to make money. It sounds like a progenitor, if you will, of Matt Ridley's work, uh, The Origins of Virtue. If you think it was, it probably was. So, um, Dr. Keeley was trained in medicine at Bart 
Medical School in London and then studied for his doctorate at Oxford University where he worked first as a Medical Research Council training fellow and then a Welcome Senior Research Fellow in Clinical Science. I give you Terence Keeley. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. It's obviously a very great honor to be here, Center of Western Democracy. Um, I will try to talk not too long because my experience is that the question and answer sessions are the best bit of sessions like this. So rather than just pontificate for a whole hour, I certainly won't do that. I will talk for about half an hour, and then perhaps we can have a fun debate. Talking about the economics of science in Washington is always particularly exciting because America, in so many cases, is the quintessential example of the benefits and disbenefits of the government funding of science. So just down the road, for example, um, in the uh, National Air and Space Museum is Flyer One, the Wright Brothers Flyer One. Um, and there's no better symbol of the 20th century. I know we're now the 21st century. There's no better symbol of the 20th century than the airplane. It flew in 1903. It's a great American discovery. And what symbolizes the 20th century better than this American discovery of aviation in 1903? So does anyone in this room know, apart from those perhaps who I've told, in which museum, right in the <laughs> Flyer One, was originally lodged? It wasn't always in the Smithsonian. The Wright brothers actually gave it to another museum first. Does anyone know what museum that might have been? You won't find out if you go to the Smithsonian. They try, they try to keep very quiet about it. The British Museum in London. The Wright brothers gave it to the British Museum in London, and it stayed in the British Museum until the last Wright brother had died. And then after he died, the Americans wrote this rather sort of sad little letter, can we have our aeroplane back, please? And the British, because we're such nice people, we gave it back to you. Why did the Wright brothers give their aeroplane to the British Museum? And it should, it should probably still be there, like the Elgin marbles you know, are, still, are still there. <laughs> the reason is that there was a terrible battle between the Wright brothers and the Smithsonian, because in the late 19th century, early 20th century, there was essentially a race between the Wright brothers, who, cost of a 1,000 private dollars, built the first flying airplane, and the Smithsonian, who had a grant, a very unusual grant in those days, because as Pat said, nationalization of American science came much later, who had a grant from the American federal government for $73,000. Later, they got another bonus, uh, bonus on top of that to build the first airplane. They called it Aerodrome 1, Aerodrome 2, Aerodrome 3. All the aerodromes crashed. They were all launched over the Potomac River, which was a very clever thing to do because the most important qualification for a pilot trying to fly a Smithsonian airplane was that he had to be able to swim. They all went straight into the river. The trouble is the Smithsonian never acknowledged that. And so for the next many years, every time someone tried to fly in this country, the Wright brothers sued for patent infringement because they had completely patented the airplane, the wings, the propellers, the aerolons, everything. And they always won their case. And so flight in America basically came to a halt because of this constant patent battle. But every time the Smithsonian backed whoever was trying to fly the airplanes, telling the most shocking untruths as to uh, who had actually got there first. And that's because the Smithsonian, with the federal government, was trying to defend the idea of the federal, government, federal funding of science. And because the federal funding of science is completely unnecessary, as I shall try to show, they had to tell naughty stories. The Smithsonian itself is a tremendous tribute to the private funding of science. Smithson was the illegitimate son of the Duke of Northumberland back in England, and because he was illegitimate, he always felt very hurt that he was never socially accepted, a sort of Downton Abbey situation. And on his death, 
He described America as a wonderful land of equality and freedom. He'd never actually come to America, but he'd read about it in books. And so he left his fortune, which was half a million dollars, which in those days was an enormous sum of money, to create in Washington an institution to be called the Smithsonian Institution so that his name could live forevermore long after the Percy's, the family name of the Dukes of Northumberland, long after the Percy's had been forgotten. Although I don't think the Percy's will be forgotten because their names appear so often in Shakespeare plays. But the point is, it was a private donation. And the other interesting point was, it was initially refused by the federal government. Those are the days of laissez-faire, and the federal government did not believe that it should be funding science, even if someone else was giving them the money. And so when the donation appeared, there were conversations and statements like this in the House. So in the House, for example, a South Carolina representative called William Preston said, if we accept this money, then every whippersnapper vagabond who wants a building named after himself will put a building up on the mall, and we'll be full of these museums created by these whippersnappers. Another South Carolina politician, John Calhoun, more thoughtfully told the Senate... This government is a trust established by the states with a specific capacity, education not included. But in the end, the money had to be accessed and spent because it was put in banks in Arkansas uh, in 1835, and by 1846, just 10 years later, half the money had been stolen. And it was such an embarrassment that this money was just going to the pockets of corrupt bankers in Arkansas that Washington took the remaining sums of money back and built the Norman Castle just down the corner. So, there's always been conflict over whether the state has needed to fund science or not, and Washington epitomizes that very well. And the conflict goes to the heart of economic growth. The modern story is that economic growth grows out of technology, which grows out of science, but science is a public good. I'll explain what I mean by that. And because science is a public good, it has to be funded by the state, because if the state didn't fund it, no one else would fund it, and therefore you wouldn't get economic growth. And so the most important economic activity of all is growth, and the modern story is that growth depends on government handouts to scientists. And without government handouts to scientists, we wouldn't grow economically, and therefore the government is the most important driver of economic growth. Now, is this true or not? I'm going to try to persuade you in the next 20 or so minutes that this is simply a myth and that we should discard it, and that there's no need for governments to fund science, at least not for economic reasons. The story starts in 1605 with an English lawyer called Francis Bacon, who wrote a book that's never been out of print called The Advancement of Learning. And he was the one who first articulated this concept of science leading to technology leading to economic growth, the so-called linear model. He was, in many respects, a very great and deep man. He, for example, was the man who first invented or described the concept of progress. It's, it's extraordinary. But before 1605, people did not actually understand the idea of progress. If you look at Aristotle or Plato or read classical authors, in the past, people thought the history of the world was circular. You had empires, you had republics, you had kingdoms, you had revolutions, you had empires, you had republics. The thing just went round and round and round. And people lived much as their ancestors had lived two, 3,000 years earlier. There was no sense of progress. And Francis Bacon was the first man to describe that. He, he called it progression, when knowledge builds on knowledge, because it's the very beginning of the scientific revolution, and he could see this concept of progress, that perhaps l history could be linear. But it means that if you're looking at stuff written before 1605, you're reading stuff that's written by people who had a very different world vision from the one that we now have. But in the middle of this book, The Advancement of Learning, he was the one who proposed Pure science leads to applied science, which leads to technology, and the pure science depends on government funding. And he got his idea from the Spanish. 
The Spanish Armada, 1588, was a very bad fright to the English because had the winds gone a different way, had there been a different admiral in charge, the Spanish may well have invaded England and conquered us. Spain was unbelievably powerful in 1588. It had discovered the Americas, of course. It had joined up with Portugal, and so it owned all of Portugal's discoveries in Africa and India and the Spice Islands. It ruled in the entire equator, basically. And half of Europe, of course, belonged to the Habsburgs as well, Holy Roman Empire. And so Spain was much, much richer than Britain. And what Francis Bacon wanted to know was why. And he came to the conclusion that there was this great man called Henry the Navigator who had invented the concept of navigating, of sending out ships to discover places like America and India, and that what Henry had done, this prince, he'd retreated to a promontory in western Portugal called Sagres. He'd collected together a group of scholars and thinkers, basically as a research institution, and there he had developed a better magnet, a better caravel, better star charts, better sails, better um, uh, steering things, whatever they're called, uh, rudders. And as a consequence of all this pure science, Portugal had taken a huge leap forward in terms of technology and therefore had created the world's first global empire together with Spain. The trouble with that story, and it's a lovely story, is it is absolutely not true. It was invented by the chroniclers of the day to disguise the fact that Henry the Navigator was actually a very unpleasant piece of work who spent his entire life trying to kill Muslims. That's what he lived for. And every time he failed to kill Muslims and got defeated, every time he invaded North Africa and got defeated, had to go back to Portugal, he decided the way to go round the Muslims to get to the gold and the slaves of Africa and the East and the spices of the Spice Islands was literally to invent the idea of sailing round Africa. He used current technology in which to do it. He was no more an innovator than anyone else. He just had the idea of let's send our ships round Africa, which is what he did. But he was an unpleasant piece of work, and there was no sense of him ever creating this research institute. It was just propaganda. But Bacon believed it, completely dispelled by Sir, Sir, Russell, um, Sir Peter Russell in 2000 in his brilliant biography. But the idea is with us still, and there are reasons why the idea is still. But what Bacon said was, knowledge is power. And what he actually said was, in using very modern language, science is a public good. He called it a universality. And he said... The benefits inventors confer extend to the whole human race, i.e. an inventor makes an invention. It's a universality. Everyone can use it, but not everyone pays for it. And so the inventor is hugely under-rewarded for his invention and will therefore be disincentivized from invention. That's what he said in very modern language 400 years ago. So what happens after him? What happens is Adam Smith. And in 1776, he writes... Wealth of Nations. I know there were other things that happened in 1776, but that was one of the things that happened in 1776. And in The Wealth of Nations, Adam Smith completely dis destroys the idea. He just says it's not true. In fact, he says, if you go to the factories of the British Industrial Revolution, which was really taking place in those days, and ask people where do the inventions come from, invariably it comes from the workmen on the factory floor or their supervisors coming up with innovations and inventions to improve existing technology. And new technology comes from old technology within the workshops of the artisans on the factory floor. There is a flow of knowledge, he says, between the factories and pure science, the academic science, but it's the other way. It's the academic scientists who are learning from the technologists. And indeed, those are the days when people believed in phlogiston, that fire was a substance. People believed in the caloric theory, 
that heat was a substance. Well, obviously, the pure science of the day had nothing to offer technologists. Obviously, the flow was the other way. And so you have two different competing models. You have the linear model of Francis Bacon that most people still believe, by the way. Money from the government goes to pure science, which goes to applied science, which goes to economic growth. And then you have Adam Smith's model based on actually what's going on in the country as it was, which is that new technology is built on old technology by existing technologists, which then leads to economic growth. And in as much as there's a flow of knowledge between science and technology, it's the other way. And there's no reason, Adam Smith said, for a single penny of government money to go into science. Now, for those of you who doubt the idea that technologists can produce good, pure science, just think of a few anecdotes from today's world. Just take one lab alone, the Bell Labs. Look at the number of Nobel Prizes Bell Labs won in, in, in the last 50 years. Um, uh, uh, Penzias and Wilson got a Nobel Prize for the discovery of the cosmic microwave background radiation from the original Big Bang. Jiangxi won a Nobel Prize for discovering the science of radio astronomy. He was the one who discovered that stars emitted radio waves. Shockley won a Nobel Prize for the transistor. That's just one lab. But there are other examples. How do we know, for example, that DNA is the chemical of genetics? Well, we know that because a scientist called Avery discovered that if he took this sugar called DNA from one type of pneumococcus to another, it's a bacterium, from a virile, um, uh, um, not virile, uh, I'm jet-lagged. Anyway, from the dangerous type of pneumococcus to the non-dangerous type of pneumococcus, the thing that transmits between the two that changes the pneumococcus is the sugar called DNA. Once he'd made that discovery, all the other discoveries in molecular biology were predetermined. But it was done doing applied science, trying to work out the causes of pneumonia. He wasn't some pure scientist doing some abstract work, very much an applied technologist. So the history is these two ideas. So let us look today at who is right. Was Bacon right that we need government funding, or was Smith right that we don't? And I'm going to look at two schools of thought. I'm going to look at the history of the last 200 years, and I'm going to look at the econometrics, the actual statistics of what's been going on of current day, and ask the question, who seems to be right? And there's no better country for looking at history than the United States of America, which has a very dramatic history. And this is the United States of America, and, oops. Yeah, so here we are. So here is 1820 to the current day, so that's nearly 200 years. And along here is GDP per capita, and along here is science funding. Now, I'm going to go to the next graph. Here is America, the United States of America, in 1940. Whoops. And in 1940, it's an extraordinary story of completely private science. So here is the government funding of science, the federal government funding of science, and there are only two real significant elements, agriculture and defense. Regardless of mythology, study after study has shown that defense research and development is worth less than 10% of civil research and development in terms of economic growth. It's an extremely wasteful form of investment. So don't think defense R&D is going to make you rich. It's not. If it was, the Soviet Union would have been rich. They had a fortune on defense R&D. Defense R&D is a waste of money. So you're not going to get wealth from that. Agriculture is interesting. As everyone knows, the Morrill Act, the land-grant colleges were created in this country in the 19th century. But what people don't know is they were not created to stimulate agricultural productivity. The great problem of American agriculture for so long has been the problem of overproductivity. There was limitless land out there. American farmers slashed and burned, slashed and burned, just carried on moving west every time. Making, making more and more food and destroying the environment while they're at it. But they were poor as mice, 
Farmers were poor because of the problems of overproductivity. There was too much food on the market. It was impossible to make a profit. And so Morrill produced the land-grant colleges in an attempt to try to raise the standing of farming socially, give them degrees so they were less unhappy, and to try to improve farming to take it away from slash and burn to more sustainable branches of farming. Agricultural R&D, funded by the state, was to address the problem of overproductivity. The Civil War is an interesting story, by the way, because it wasn't just the land-grant colleges that were created during the Civil War. Also, the National Academy of Sciences was created, and that's a very important fact. National Academy of Sciences was created by the federal government to help the federal government develop ironclads and other technologies to defeat the South. It wasn't some abstract ivory tower pure science. It was a wartime measure. So here is America in 1940. You've been the richest country in the world since 1890. So for 50 years, you've been the richest country in the world in terms of GDP per capita. You've had the Wright brothers. You've had Edison. You've had Tesla. You are the new imperial nation. And by definition, therefore, you're, by their definition, therefore, you're the most technologically advanced. Because the richer country you are, the more technologically advanced you are. The two are synonymous. And yet, federal funding for R&D, research and development, essentially zero. Research and development, by the way, is the umbrella term. It encompasses academic science, but that's only about 10% of government of, of, of uh, national budgets. And the other 90% is what goes on in industry. So it's the overall term. So federal R&D is, I can't see out my glasses, I think it says 79 million. There's a little bit of state funding, which is mainly agriculture. But here is private funding. Look how much bigger that is. I can't, actually, can I just get my glasses? Yeah, no, thanks. I, I can't see what it says. So uh, yeah, here we are. So Private funding is 265 million as opposed to government, which is only 81 million. And it's not just 234 million for industrial R&D. It's also 31 million for university pure science. People like Einstein um, uh, at Princeton working in the Institution for, uh, the, for Advanced uh, Studies, uh, which was funded, of course, by the Bamberas as a philanthropic donation to, to, to improve pure science in this country. Plenty of philanthropic money in the States before 1940. And so uh, something like three-quarters of all the money of the richest country and the most technological country in the world is provided by the private sector. So to go back to what happens, here we have a 200-year history. Oh, God, blimey. <laughs> here we have a 200-year history, GDP per capita, straight line. I'll talk about that in a minute. And here is the federal government expenditure. And as you can see in 1940, it's pretty trivial. And then after the war, it takes off and America goes from a country that believed in laissez-faire in science to a country that believed that the government should fund science. And you go from this tiny sum of money, and suddenly you're spending three, four billion pounds a year, and it continues to increase, of course, to the current day. What does that do to rates of GDP per capita growth? Well, like all advanced countries, this is a pretty linear thing. It's been pretty linear for 200 years. That, of course, is the Great Depression. So if you could sort of forget the Great Depression, you can see that it would be really extraordinarily linear for 200 years. And that's the same for all the advanced countries, Britain, Germany, France. They all look pretty much like that. But you can't find any deflection as you go from laissez-faire science to much more dirigiste science. You can't find any effect of that either on GDP per capita growth or on total factor productivity growth. And by the way, it's exactly the same story in England. We were completely laissez-faire until the First World War. That, for us, was total war. 1940 was total war for you. 1914 was total war for us. And suddenly we go from laissez-faire to a huge government investment in science. And again, if you, if you imagine, and that's the British line for GDP per capita growth, absolutely no deflection. 
What's particularly interesting in the 19th century is France and Germany. They start off about two-thirds as rich as America, but they have huge government funding of science all throughout this period here. And yet France and Germany do not converge. Their line looks like that. The great failure of economic growth in the 19th century is the failure of France and Germany to converge on America or Britain, even though they had huge government funding for science. So the laissez-faire countries were doing better than the government-funded science countries. All that changes only after the Second World War, ironically, when Britain and France now adopt the idea of government funding of science. And again, I'm not going to blame our relative being overtaken by the French and the Germans on government funding of science in London and Washington, but certainly there are absolutely no correlations around. And so if you look at the historical data, no one has ever been able to show that the government funding of science stimulates economic growth. There simply is no evidence historically that that's the case once you look at GDP per capita against government funding of science. What about the current econometric data? Because history is history, and we all know you can't necessarily trust history. Perhaps the current economic data will tell a different story. The best story we have is the one produced by the OECD, and you can look this up on the web. They published in 2003 a book or paper called Sources of Economic Growth in OECD Countries. And they looked at the economic performance of the 21 countries of the OECD, between 1971 and 1998, a very long period of time. And they did it longitudinally. So they looked to see what you did in 1971, and then they saw what happened in 72, 73, all the way to 98. They were able to do the multivariate analysis in a progressive longitudinal way so they could start to try to dissect cause and effect. What did they find? They looked at literally dozens of different inputs, all sorts of economic parameters. But two parameters in particular they picked out was funding for R&D government funding for R&D, and private funding for R&D. And what they found, well, let me read to you from their own report. The negative results for public R&D are surprising. What they found was a very nice correlation between private funding for R&D and subsequent economic growth. There was no correlation between public funding of R&D and economic growth. In fact, as they point out in the OECD report, there was a slightly negative correlation as if the public funding of R&D had crowded out the private R&D and might even have damaged economic growth. Just down the road, there's a very good economist called Walter Park, and earlier he, and actually I as well, had also looked at OECD data and we'd earlier published exactly the same findings. Let me quote from Walter Park's paper. The direct effect of public research is weakly negative, as might be the case if public research spending has crowded out, has crowded out effects which adversely affect private output growth. I.e. Park here in Washington also finds that the data shows that the public funding of R&D crowds out the private funding of R&D, and not only does it itself not stimulate economic growth, it may actually damage economic growth by the crowding out of the private R&D. That's pretty damning contemporary econometric data. So that's econometrics, that's a history. Where does economics sit at the moment? What are the economists telling us? The economic story, the modern economic story, starts um, about 50 years ago with three great men. I'm not being sarcastic, I'm being serious. Three great men who published three very important papers. In 1957, Robert Solo, who went on to win the Nobel Prize, published a paper showing that almost all economic growth in America could be attributed to technology as opposed to, say, capital deepening or any other uh, standard economics input. It's technology that leads to economic growth. We know that. 
Um, subsequently, two other very distinguished economists, Kenneth Arrow, who won a Nobel Prize, and Richard Nelson, who didn't win a Nobel Prize, but is of that sort of quality, both published papers saying that science was a public good and needed, therefore, to be funded by the state. Why is science a public good? Well, the technical terms are excludability and rivalry. What they mean by that, a public good is non-excludable and non-rivalrous. So, for example, rivalry means that um, if this is a pen, it is, and I'm writing with it, you can't write with it while I'm writing with it. It's rivalrous. Only one of us can use this pen. It's a private good. It's not a public good. Excludability means that I can keep it. If you try to take my pen from me, I can call a policeman or I can hit you and stop you taking it from me. I can exclude you from the use of this private good. So private goods are excludable and rivalrous. Public goods are non-excludable and non-rivalrous. So the third law of thermodynamics, non-rivalrous. I can use it, but it doesn't stop you from using it. And by the way, it's published out there, so I can't stop you from accessing it either. So science is a public good. That's the story. This pen is a private good. And that's what Kenneth Arrow and Richard Nelson said. And like Francis Bacon 400 years earlier, because it's a public good, it has to be funded by the state. Why should any private person fund a public good when all the benefits go to other people? The story gets modulated subsequently by two other groups of economists. Paul Romer, a very famous economist, came up with the endogenous growth theory. He, he, he basically looked out of his window. He said, well, look, it's all very good saying this, but look at all these labs. I mean... United States of America is dotted with private research labs. It can't just be a public good. Otherwise, what are all these companies doing funding their own science? And he produced a paper in which he showed that, yes, science is uh, not excludable, is, not is non-rivalrous. Obviously, anybody can use a theory of science, but it is partially excludable. You can patent discoveries. You can have commercial secrecy. You can stop your discoveries leaking out, at least for some time. He therefore produced a model by which science was partly a private good, and therefore there would be some private funding for science. He still thought it was only partially excludable, and therefore you would still need some public top-up, quite a lot of public top-up perhaps, but at least he started the process of recognising that science wasn't purely a public good. And as I said yesterday, I do actually owe Paul Romer an apology, because when I first read his paper, I only saw the statement that governments needed to fund science. I failed to understand the elegance of his model, where he pointed out that actually science had a lot of private uh, characteristics. And I didn't give him credit for that in my first book, and I, I do apologise <coughs> for him for that. Nonetheless, he's, he's describing science as a merit good. It's only partially private. It still needs government support. And the other was a paper by Das Kupter and David, which basically made the same sort of points, though not, not in the same mathematical way. The story is this. What they're saying is the costs of copying are so trivial. That's what the conventional view is. The costs of copying are so trivial compared to the costs of invention that invention is disincentivized. So if I spend a million dollars on creating a new mousetrap, and you can copy my mousetrap for $10, then you have nearly a million dollars more than I do because of all the money I've spent, so you can do better advertising, better marketing with your easily copied mousetrap, whereas I can't afford the marketing and all the rest of it because I'm impoverished by my research, and you will therefore beat me to the market and, and drive me into bankruptcy, so there's no rational person does research. That's the standard story. The problem with the standard story is this is not true. You can actually measure the costs of copying, uh, Edwin Mansfield, uh, sadly now dead, pointed out that in the world of industry, something like 
65, it costs about 65% of the cost of innovation to copy. Copying is really quite expensive. To copy someone else's innovation costs something like 65% of the original cost of innovation to get that to the market because so much learning has to take place. Those are just the direct costs of copying, but there are huge indirect costs as well. Look, let's talk about reading other people's science. Let's not talk about contemporary science because everyone knows contemporary science is really difficult. Let's look at really old-fashioned science, dark age science. Let's look at science 100 years ago. Obviously, 100 years ago, science was such a primitive thing. Let's look at Einstein's theories of relativity, which are over 100 years old. Presumably anyone can now just pick up the papers and read them. Well, of course not. It's very, very hard reading science unless you are yourself a scientist. And you have to be a scientist in that field. If you're a biochemist, Einstein's theories of relativity are just as alien to you as if you're reading French history. You have to be a scientist in the same field to understand the papers in that field. But if you really want to understand those papers, you have to yourself be an active researcher because, because it is only active researchers who understand the so-called tacit knowledge, who understand what they know and don't know, who can read the papers of other people and understand what it is they need to copy and what it is they don't need to copy. And you're only going to be an active researcher if you're doing only your own research. It is only one group of active researchers who can read the papers of other active researchers and copy from them. And that is the other part of the 100% of copying. 65% of the costs of direct copying, but it costs about 35% to employ the scientists in the first place and the labs and the electricity and the journals and let them go off to conferences and the research they do and the papers they themselves publish. So they are qualified to copy the science of others. So actually, copying the science of others, put all those things together, it's 100%. Science is not a public good. It's a good that's very expensive to access. And as a consequence of that, study after study shows, well, Zvi Grilikas, for example, did a survey of over 200 companies in New England, and he showed there was a direct relationship between their investment in pure science and their subsequent profitability. Pure science is a very good investment for companies because with pure science, you get pure scientists, and they can start to, are qualified to start copying the science and indeed the technology of other companies. So copying is as expensive as innovation once you add all the costs up together, which is why, um, uh, as was shown by the Science Policy Research Unit in the University of Sussex in Britain recently, something like 7% of all industrial R&D is for pure science. Now, since industrial R&D is between 2 and 3% of GDP in advanced countries, we are talking about very large sums of money indeed. It's also a myth, by the way, that industrial science is secret. One of the stories that we have to have public funding of science is to stop companies being secretive. Actually, the evidence is very clear. Companies don't keep secrets. Uh, when innovations are made, within a year, their competitors know. Within a year. And why is this? It's because scientists trade knowledge with each other, even from competitive companies. In fact, particularly from competitive companies, because it's only of your competitors who understand what you're up to and can help you. So... Let's, let's ask ourselves the question, why do scientists publish? I mean, why do scientists, you know, even academic scientists, why do they put this stuff in the research journals and let everyone know what they're up to? Why do they go to meetings and boast about what they've done? They didn't always. In the olden days, scientists used to publish secretly. Before the Royal Society was created in Britain in the middle of the 17th century, and there were equivalent societies in France and Italy and other European countries at the same time. Before these societies arose in the 17th century, scientists would publish a paper, they would, 
and then they would have it notarized by a lawyer and put in a safe and hidden away. And then they would only bring it out if a competitive publication came along, and then they would go back to the safe and show the notary stamp and show the data and say, look, I was there first. So they, they're claiming the credit for being first, but without getting any benefits away for anyone else. Or they might publish openly as an anagram. So a paper might appear with 17 A's and 14 B's and 12 C's and 8 D's. So, of course, no one could understand what it meant. But when a competitive publication came along, the scientists would say, look, this is the code. And it actually stands for these words. I was there first. Well, obviously, there's no way to proceed. And so the societies were created to encourage people to publish openly and fully, including their methods sections and their full results sections, so that everyone could know what everyone else was doing. Initially, of course, this was resisted because it's such a terrible risk if you reveal everything to your competitors. But l let's look at it this way. This room divides rather nicely into two halves. Let's pretend that that half over there are the scientists who decide to join the Royal Society, publish openly, and share all their data with each other. And this group of people here are going to keep to the traditional model of keeping secret. Now, who's going to make the great, next great discovery? Well, each of you only has your own resources to draw on. These people have the resources of the minds of 20 or 30 other people. We don't know which one of those it'll be, but we know damn well it won't be one of you lot. It's dangerous publishing because your competitors might, might steal a march on you, but on the other hand, you might steal a march on them, but they have access to 20 minds and you only have access to your own minds. And it's the same in industry. Companies share knowledge because it's in their interest to share knowledge. And so, for example, um, Von Hippel at MIT Sloan showed that of 11 the 11 major steel companies in this country, 10 regularly exchange proprietary information with their competitors. And Thomas Allen, who worked with Hippel uh, in Sloan, actually showed that 23% of industrial innovations in this country, 23%, come from ideas that were given to companies by competitors, scientific competitors. But it's a trade. You're not going to share knowledge with, you know, with the garage around the corner, but you might share knowledge with, with, with Google research labs you know, in their huge campus somewhere. So you share knowledge with peers because they've got something worth giving you and you've got something worth giving them, and it's a quid pro quo. So actually scientists trade, and it's a very good economic model because at the level of pure science and knowledge, there is complete understanding in the field of what's going on, but when it actually comes to the uh, exploitation of technology, at that point you do get proprietary information, and you do at that point get... Uh, competition in a way that benefits the consumer. So, to come to the end of the story, how did economics get it so wrong? Well, I think it got it so wrong because economists are not experimentalists. They don't do what Adam Smith did and go out and look what's going on. They're theoreticians and they come up with models and ideas. Science appears to be a public good at first sight. You can just go to the libraries and pick out the journals or you can go to the patent uh, library and pick up the patents. But unless you understand who can actually read those papers and why those customs have evolved, you don't actually see that it's not, in fact, public good. And there is a slightly naughty point worth pointing out, that Robert Solo, Richard Nelson, and Ken Arrow, great men though they were, and they were, when they were publishing these papers, they were all associated with the RAND Corporation, which stands for Research and Development Corporation, which is the very nightmare of Eisenhower's military-industrial complex, because the RAND Corporation was created by the Air Force, the US Air Force, and the Douglas Aircraft Company as a think tank to lobby for more government money for science, and how very convenient it was that these three great economists produced papers that argued just the same thing. 
I recently published a paper with my friend Martin Ricketts, a new model of science. After 400 years of science being modelled as a public good, we have modelled it as a contribution good. It came out in Research Policy, which is a good journal in this field, um, in which we pointed out that on the game modelling, you know, classic game theory, that if you model that you can only access the research of others, if you have yourself produced research, that they can access in turn, and so you exchange information. If you model science as a contribution good, then you suddenly go from the problem of there not being an incentive to do research to there being a very good incentive to do research. The model itself, our model, had its faults. One of the consequences was that, um, left to its own devices, the model showed that every single human being in the United States of America would become an active research scientist, which probably doesn't fit the facts either. So we've had to put in a bit of diminishing returns here and there. But it certainly overcomes the problems of uh, why governments don't need to fund science. And it totally explains the econometric data of the OECD that I came up with. And it certainly explains the historical data. And I just want to finish with my final point. The evidence seems to be pretty clear. In practice, government funding for science simply crowds out private funding and has no long-term good economic benefits and therefore shouldn't be done. And the only reason that I, I'm going to stop in one minute so we have a proper Q&A the only justification, I believe, for the government funding of science is not economic, because that, that, that story has been demolished if you look at it carefully. It's social. It's cultural. It's human. It's about democracy. Some science should be funded by the state, I believe, so it becomes democratically accountable. Would we, for example, know about tobacco smoking if the only people researching lung cancer were Philip Morris? Probably not. So you do need government-funded science that accounts to a democratic forum, so that is not monopolised. Science is monopolised either by philanthropists exclusively, these vagabonds that were so disliked 200 years ago, or the companies, but only if it doesn't crowd out philanthropic science. And unfortunately, the evidence is that government funding for science probably does crowd out philanthropic science, so you have a problem there. But in any case, no one could deny the moral justification that there should be a democratically accountable science. But its job is not to support industry, and that's the problem with the modern industrial complex. Government science is there to support industry. That's what it does, unfortunately. But if it was against and opposed to industry, then I think there would be a justification. It wouldn't give you economic growth, but it might make for a better society. Thank you.